Welcome to the Alternative Data Podcast. Welcome to the Alternative Data Podcast, powered by XML. I'm Mark Fleming-Williams. In this episode, I'm joined by Chirayu Patel of Rakani Capital, a fund that uses alternative data to provide a 6% set return for its investors. In our conversation, Chirayu and I explore the Rakani model, some of the advantages and challenges of being an emerging manager in this space, the pricing of data sets, and the future of alternative data. So in this episode, I'm joined by Chirayu Patel of Rakani Capital. Thank you very much for joining, Chirayu. Thank you. Appreciate you taking the time here. You're very welcome. Um, so Chirayu, you are you've you've been with Rakani Capital since August 2020. Maybe the best way is to let's let's begin by introducing Rakani Capital, just to put ourselves on the map a little bit. Sure. In simple terms, Rakani Capital provides investors uh, attractive high fixed returns with minimal price volatility and no fees, irregardless of the market conditions. So we're essentially solving the problem of how to generate yield in today's low interest rate environment um, while still managing all the market and price volatility for investors. Fantastic. Nice and nice and snappy. Um, OK, cool. So let us. So before Rakani, as I say, um, did you did you did you found did you co-found Rakani or did you join it in 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 place? Oh uh, yeah, I was the original founder over two years you the, ago. You were the founder, excellent. So um, before you founded Rakani in in August 2020, um, you spent many years working at BlackRock, um, which is which is obviously a familiar name. Um, why don't we go back? I often find it's useful to um, to to frame the conversation by beginning by saying. How did you come across the idea of alternative data? Sure. Well, my previous role, I'd spent about 14 years uh, at BlackRock uh, and working one on one of their largest uh, global mutual funds, uh, which in the peak had over $105 billion of assets and which we invested in all asset classes globally. So pretty broad mandate, which, you know, gave us a lot of exposure um, to a variety of data, a variety of companies over time. So probably about 10 years ago, we started getting introduced to what was then sort of the rough alternative data space. Uh, I looked at a little bit of satellite imaging and tracking when it came to shipping data, uh, as well as some other fields um, in the early days of uh, click and encounters uh, when it came to foot traffic and vehicle information for a lot of the retail space, uh, and then progressed into sort of credit card transaction data. Um, so utilize a handful of, of you know, initial alternative data uh, information over 10 years ago at this point. What type of investing were, were, were you doing at, um, at BlackRock? Uh, so we invested in all securities, uh, all asset classes globally. So I ran, I covered uh, every sector at some point. Uh, I focused uh, my career early on in, in the Asian markets um, and then expanded uh, globally as well. So again, the alternative data was more useful in the developed markets, but there was still some information, um, especially when it came to sort of tracking Chinese uh, commodities, Chinese uh, import-export data. Um, so there's a variety of information out there at the time. And was it more from a from a um, systematic or a discretionary perspective? 
more from a fundamental perspective. So mm -hmm. this is more bottoms up fundamental uh, based investing. Okay, fantastic. Um, and so you you it came across your came across your bows and and about ten years ago, um, and so you were just kind of alternative data was just you were just how 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 did it come across your bows? Did, did it um did it just come into the firm and and someone gave it to you and said what can you make of this or did you hear that you needed alternative data for your strategy so you went out and found found it how did how did it how did it come about? Yeah, it was a mix. I mean, being at BlackRock, obviously a, a large firm with a lot of resources. Um, so some of it was internal resources that we were developing a bit. Um, a lot of it came from external sources. So again, some of it was driven by speaking to sell-side analysts, speaking to the companies themselves and understanding what data they were using to track their own uh, internal information. Um, some of it was coming from firms that were developing um, and reaching out to us saying, hey, here's an interesting use case on, uh, again, an alternative data point that you're not going to get from traditional sell-side research or other firms at that time. Um, so it was a combination of, of all of those. Fantastic. Um, okay, so you were at um, so as you say, you were at BlackRock for for a long time, thirteen years, working out of out of Princeton, um, and so then in August twenty twenty, you found Rakani Capital. How did this come about? Yeah, so we actually initially um, started in, in May of 2020, and then our funds themselves launched in August of 2020. Essentially, one of the glaring problems in the investment world, um, particularly at that time, and I think going forward, is the notion of investors looking for high fixed returns um, in a very low interest rate environment. And then secondly, not having to worry about all the market volatility incorporated um, in the investment world. And frankly, we spent a, quite a bit of time both at BlackRock and, and separately trying to solve this problem. And there was no real direct solutions for investors. Uh, so myself and, and my team uh, created a, a product for this to essentially provide investors a high fixed return. Um, so one of our products, our core flagship product, offers 6% fixed returns to investors, and we manage all of the market volatility. Um, so essentially, again, there's no price volatility to investors as well. And continuing the notion of providing very investor-friendly solutions, we have no management fees, we have no withdrawal fees, it's a highly, highly liquid product. Um, so we try to find a unique uh, solution for investors in the marketplace that didn't exist already. So how does this work? In theory, um, so let's say you, so using alternative data, then you can calculate that this gives you an edge on the market um, and that you can make money with it. So that's that's a kind of, if we smooth it out over five years, let's say, then you're going to be making a certain amount of return on it. Um but if without your um, clever management style, um, then perhaps one year you'll make fifteen percent, and then the next year you'll make minus five percent. Um, you know, it's, it's gonna, it could be, it could be up and down, or depending, you know, depending on lots of things. It could, the, those numbers obviously could be very different. Um, but what you're suggesting is that you're smoothing it out so that it's a guaranteed return of six percent, which is a, which is a, a pretty solid return. Um, how are you managing that? Uh, how are you managing that volatility out? How are you protecting against poor performance, which um, you know no one wants, but it but it can happen? How, how is this? How is this kind of being turned into a science in the way that it sounds? 
Sure. Well, there, it's essentially a, a different approach and mentality when it comes to portfolio management. So there's a few different things. First of all, our mandate allows us to be highly flexible. We can long, we can go short, um, we can use derivatives to hedge. Um, as well as for tactical opportunities. So we don't need a rising equity or uh, increasing bond market at any time. We can essentially take advantage of any market opportunity. Um, so that's first and foremost, where a lot of the investment world today is, is long only um, and essentially needs a rising market to meet its investors' demands. Um, so th that's first and foremost. Secondly, our approach and style is quite different. Where most funds are set up to either beat a benchmark or um, essentially meet some sort of return uh, profile that beats their peers, that's not our goal. We're not worried about what the market does necessarily. Our entire goal is to provide this fixed return back to investors. And what that means is we don't necessarily need to chase any particular sector, any particular company. We just need to, in the broad mandate of investing in any asset class globally, be able to generate a risk-adjusted uh, return that fits this framework. So for example, if the tech sector you know, is running hot and everyone's excited about tech, we may not be tech experts. So we don't necessarily need to chase it. As long as we're finding opportunities anywhere in the world in any asset class, we can meet our objectives. So for example, if we're looking at a security, our goal is not to beat a benchmark or to own it versus anything else. Our goal is to, in the best way, whether it's owning the equity, whether it's writing a derivative um, on it, um, we just really need to get a six to 10% return back on it. Our goal is not to, to get as much as possible. And we want to do this in a risk-adjusted manner so that we also protect our downside so we don't have large uh, drawdowns in, in, our, uh, in our assets as well. And so what happens to the money either side of 6%? Is it that if it, if you make ten, if you if you uh, get 10% in the year then then the extra 4% goes into your bonuses and if you get 2% that year then there's no bonus pool for you. Is it is it like that or how how is this um what uh, so it's very hard to specifically get 6%. Presumably you're going to be above or below um each year, isn't that isn't that right? Sure. So what we do is we, again, for the first 6% is allocated directly to investors um, and they get paid on that. Um, and then even in an environment where we don't generate 6%, we're still obligated to pay the investors that fixed rate. So we keep additional equity in the fund to make sure we can meet any obligations. Uh, secondly, again, periods where we earn more than 6%, we essentially build the equity in the fund to continue to ensure our ability to pay the 6% over time. Um, and then third, again, we are not charging investors any direct management fee. So our goal is to generate above 6%, so that way we can pay our own operating expenses as well as after paying the investors themselves directly. Um, so essentially we keep an equity buffer within the the fund in order to meet the obligation and we have almost a two-year track record where on a quarterly basis we've been able to pay investors um the assets have remained above the live uh requirements of the investors um so we're continuing to build that audited track record out to prove prove this concept fantastic okay um and so where does the alternative data come in? You're, are you using alternative data for your investments? And in, in which case, how? 
Sure, we're a fundamentally driven uh, investment uh, firm. So we utilize alternative data to help drive our investment decisions, both from long-term uh, decisions as well as more short-term and tactical opportunities as well. Is there a type of data that you're particularly keen on? Yeah, well, our approach to alternative data um, has evolved over the last couple of years. Um, essentially, we utilize, we came to the realization that we, in, when it comes to alternative data, it's best to utilize as many sources as possible. So we utilize combination of credit card transaction, foot traffic, app data, um, a bit of imaging data as well, web scraping. So we've used a mosaic theory where, again, it's best to pick from a variety of sources, overlay them to help create a, the best picture possible when it comes to, to utilizing that data for investment purposes. Uh, across all, across all uh, industry sectors and, and, um, and geographies? Correct. And most of it is focused on, on the U.S., uh, secondarily with Europe. Um, as you know, the alternative data space is clearly driven in the U.S. Secondly, in, in Europe, um, the data is growing and becoming increasingly better in Asia. Um, and then again, certain sectors, it, it benefits more than others at this point, but it is it is growing quite a bit where you see the traditional consumer retail sectors. Um, but I think we're seeing a lot of growth when it comes to healthcare, industrials, um, even business services. And uh, I think there's more opportunity in, in energy and materials as well going forward. How do you choose which alternative data set to buy? We've worked with a variety of, of the main vendors in the industry. We've tested a, a variety of them um, to figure out who's sort of the best long-term partner for us. Some of that's premised on the actual data sources themselves. Some of that's premised on their ability to synthesize and provide it in a clean format for us. Uh, some of the factors are pricing. Um, but ultimately, we're looking to build long-term relationships uh, with the data providers where, again, firms that are growing themselves because this is an ever-changing industry where we're going to need to continue to develop a wide variety of data sources as well as to be able to synthesize that data in a user-friendly model, especially for firms like ours that are not quant-heavy at this time. How important is it, um, the personnel of the alternative data provider, how, how much of a factor is that when you, when you shake their hand and look them in the eye? Is that is that important or is that secondary? Yeah, it's an important factor. Particularly a fund like ours, we're can still considered an emerging manager uh, fund, and we don't have large teams of data scientists at this point. So we would rely on our alternative data partners to have more detailed and in-depth teams that can, again, help synthesize and help us walk through the data in a user-friendly manner for us. And I think this is an important factor because most of the alternative data industry historically has focused and been driven by large firms, large institutions that do have the the um, uh, resources to spend on alternative data. And I think that dynamic has changed quite dramatically in the last couple of years where emerging managers can start utilizing this information in a way they never could before, especially as the data becomes more commoditized, more widespread, more affordable. Um, so to, to us, I think that's been a, an interesting opportunity where, again, most of our emerging manager peers that we speak to are not utilizing alternative data for a variety of reasons. What do you think is the biggest hurdle to adoption of alternative data? What do you think is the biggest challenge which might explain why they're not, why your competitors aren't using it? 
I think in, in the emerging manager space, I think it's a lack of understanding, to be frank. I think most people, when they look at alternative data, think of, well, I need a large data uh, science team. I need a large budget and a large resources for this. And that might have been true five to 10 years ago, but I don't think that's true uh, today, especially as the vendors and the alternative data providers have really enhanced their offering and have made it more affordable, particularly for emerging managers. Is there a problem, um, even if they are? Um, it, so do you find that all the alternative data providers have up their game and they are all producing kind of front ends of, of some sort or, or means to, to, to a front end? Um, do you uh, do you find that they're quite varied um, and you have to kind of get your head around one alternative data providers front end front end and then you're going to another data set and it's a it's an entirely different way of presenting it and etc is it or is or, or can you see a standardization coming to the market i don't think there's a complete standardization at this point i think each of the uh alternative data providers have developed their own resources and their own platform internally, thus making them uh, different across the board. But as you utilize the data across the space, again, and across different providers, as well as different sources, you can start building some synergies internally where you can understand what to look for, how to look for that data and where to, where to get it from. And again, the, the platforms and um, the synthesis of the data is quite different across the different providers. Um, and it is a, a differentiating factor for who we decide to work with as well. Do you find, do you think the pricing of alternative data is um, feels about right, particularly in terms of relative, relative pricing between data sets? Does it feel like a, a developed market in that um you you largely get what you pay for and you've got ways of being sure you're going to get what you pay for before you buy uh i would say it's still in the middle innings where it some of it has been sort of hashed out many of the vendors and providers we speak to have a sense of what the pricing is across the industry so pricing is somewhat known but it is highly varied um, and there are nuances where some firms may provide, you know, tr more traditional commoditized data, but a very high price point. So may they, they might not have caught up to the industry factors uh, that have changed where other providers might have more unique uh, and uh, proprietary data, but are pricing it at more attractive rates. So I think there is still opportunity to sort of understand the space and pick and choose where the, where the best opportunity and value comes from. Would you um, recognize a model, a pricing model of uh, the data which is closest to the final numbers, perhaps uh, a credit card transaction data set would be an example, uh, would perhaps be the most expensive and then working further away and getting to the more indirect methods like, I don't know, then footfall is perhaps a step back um, because it's not actually the money itself. It's showing a person who might or might not spend money. Um, would you would you recognize that model as being a way of, of a kind of tiered pricing with uh, with the credit card being the most expensive and then and then the least direct uh, source of value being being the least expensive? 
I don't think it's that uh, straightforward. I think there's other factors that matter more than just the accuracy in terms of how the data is priced. A lot of it has to do with the relationships and where the uh, the providers themselves are sourcing the data. So there's a variety of costs associated. I mean, the cost to, to get credit card transaction data is very different than foot traffic data, than mobile data, than email receipt data. Um, so I think the, the actual price to the end customer is more varied on how much it costs um, the provider themselves to source the data, whether they're building it internally, whether they're sourcing it from a third party, um, as opposed to, hey, this is the most accurate uh, data source that we have, we're going to price it at a premium. Um, so I, I think it's much more dependent on the cost of acquiring that data for the providers. Do you shop on price at all in that, as you say, it, it's so if it's situational and depending on the cost that that specific provider has acquired the data set at, then that might be a cost, an arbitrary cost, which has been set by the original seller. Um, so does it have you found that there is a benefit in shopping around in order to compare? Because maybe you'll get the same amount of value for a much lower cost if 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 you happen to hit on the right uh, hit, hit on the right provider. Yes, very much so. I mean, we've spent the last two years uh, trying to learn and, and work with a variety of providers that are out there. Uh, not all of them, but at least the, the main ones. And we have tried to understand what are they offering and what is the pricing? So what's the value for us as an emerging manager? While we don't have an unlimited uh, budget when it comes to, to research and alternative data, I, I will say that we have moved you know, the vast majority of our budget when we started was dedicated to sell-side research and very little to alternative data. And over the course of one to two years, we've actually shifted uh, the vast majority of our research budget to alternative data because we find more value add there uh, relative to, to some of the traditional sell-side research. How interesting. And so do you think your experience is idiosyncratic or do you think that might be reflected in where the whole market is going, that actually the value is moving into alternative data rather than the traditional researchers? I think for emerging managers, it's definitely a unique approach to research. Like I said, I think uh, alternative data is highly underpenetrated when it comes to emerging managers. Um, but I think over time, as the education of, of the data, as the commoditization and the pricing levels continue to to you know, become more affordable, particularly for emerging managers, I think we'll see more and more of that shift. You've, you, you first came across alternative data 10 years ago. Um, are you finding as more, you're, and you're saying that it's still not a full, fully penetrated market, but it's much more penetrated clearly than it was 10 years ago. Are you finding, are you seeing the competition much more in terms of um, actually as an emerging manager, getting hold of a data set where there is still alpha to be found within it are you are you is that a is that becoming more and more of a struggle or is it um or does it still feel like kind of i don't know early early innings as they say it's certainly not early innings particularly compared to call it 10 to 15 plus years ago where the early days of some of the the foot traffic counters and the credit card transactions was just almost pure alpha at that point because the vast majority of the industry wasn't using it um, but it's more mid mid innings at this point where, again, I, I think uh, still much of the if you just think of the assets that are managed uh, globally, much of it is still very traditional. It's ETF based. Um, it's not all, all as more and more money has moved to passive income. Those folks are not using alternative data. 
um, its passive money. So there's still a large amount of the industry that's traditionally managed and barely using alternative data. Now, with that said, again, most of the larger funds um, and firms have already adapted uh, alternative data. So again, the traditional credit card information and even some of the mobile data and so forth has been commoditized. So you'll see company stock price move quicker than it has in the past based on more live data. That, that certainly is true. But where there's still opportunity is even some of the, I mean, the opportunities in both small cap and larger cap companies. We do still see meaningful price uh, reactions, uh, particularly when you can identify certain factors. It's not all about just revenue uh, beats. There might be a, a meaningful amount that has to do with margins and potential even future guidance. I mean, COVID was a great sort of two-year example of how you had large swings uh, when it came to sales uh, of companies and the credit card uh, and a general alternative data was good at identifying that ahead of sort of traditional methods, where again, a lot of traditional consensus numbers are a little bit slow to, to highlight large moving factors. Um, even the timing of data, um, there's differences. And if you're utilizing the data on a live basis, if you're looking at it daily versus weekly versus some firms that look at it monthly or quarterly, there's a, there's an advantage and depending on how often you're looking at it, there's an advantage in looking across uh, different market cap companies. I think there's still um, a lot of opportunity in the smaller and mid cap space because they're just not utilized as much by uh, larger institutions or larger firms. And then again, I mentioned before that it's important to utilize a variety of data sources. Um, while credit card transactions may tell you one thing, the mobile app data might tell you something different. Email receipt data, the, the quantity of that might be less, but the accuracy might be higher. So you wanna sort of utilize that as well. Um, so again, there's still a lot of alpha opportunity uh, within alternative data, especially from an emerging manager perspective. So you're in a market with, you're an emerging man manager in an alternative data market against some pretty big established players with a lot of a lot of oomph behind them. Um, presumably there's, I, I would feel, feel that there's two things that you might, might think you have going for you in that competition. The first one being that this, this kind of aiming for 6% um, aspect, which is um, compared to potentially where the you know the the perhaps some of the bigger firms are trying to swing it out of the park every time and and getting caught as a result. So your six percent that kind of more moderate approach might allow you to find your gains in a much more kind of calm manner, which 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 would protect you well against. But presumably also being an emerging manager, then the 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 numbers that you're dealing in are, are smaller. They some of the larger ones are going to have to. Um, find positions in very liquid markets and, and larger markets in order to make the money that 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 that, that they're after um whereas you can be a bit more nimble is that though would those two factors kind of ring true in in your in your kind of battle against the big boys yeah you're absolutely right so on the first point um the notion of uh how how we go about portfolio management is very different than most of the industry because again we're not trying to beat a benchmark we're not trying to beat 
peers necessarily. We're solely focused on returning um, the 6% fixed obligation we have to investors. So it's a very different portfolio management mindset than others have. And frankly, we believe a less stressful mindset because we can take our time. We don't, we're not forced into any positions um, and we can, again, look at any asset class globally as well. So it's a very different portfolio management strategy. And then secondly, again, you're absolutely right on the liquidity factor where large funds um, clearly have liquidity constraints. We can be significantly more nimble when it comes to that. And it, frankly, it's become more important over time as any market participant will tell you, the liquidity dynamics have changed dramatically over the years, particularly as passive uh, money has come into the market. Um, the amount of liquidity, particularly when it comes to pre and post um, market activity, which can be very important, especially during earnings season, where again, most earnings are reported uh, after or before market hours. A lot of participants cannot um, participate in that, where we can take advantage of, of earnings um, more nimble and more accurate than others can. So um, yeah, I would agree on both of the factors that you mentioned. Fantastic. Um you say correctly that you are a um, that the fact that you can go long and short and um, and play in various markets all over the world gives you a, a, a wonderful flexibility in order to find your six percent. And so you're to an extent market agnostic. If it goes down, you can also make money as well. Nevertheless, I imagine there will be markets where it's easier to make six percent and there's markets where it's more difficult to make six percent there will be certain circumstances in which it's easier to make money no matter or, or less less easy to make money no matter how nimble you can be um are there circumstances under which you would consider you know saying right the market's good so we'll put it up to eight percent or the market's very difficult so we'll put it down to four percent sure at this time the six percent uh makes sense and the reason we went with that figure is one it provides a significantly higher return than most um comparable alternatives particularly savings accounts any sort of government uh yield at this point um, and secondly, it's a very uh, manageable target at, from a portfolio management point of view. Again, considering our broad mandate, um, it, it's very manageable. So it's nothing too aggressive or egregious. At the same time, we're definitely adding value for investors. In At this point, the only scenarios that we imagine where that 6% would change is if interest rate environment changes dramatically, meaning for some reason, again, U.S. interest rates go north of 6% um, and you can get the alternative in a government bond. Well, clearly, then that would be a, a more attractive alternative than what we're providing. So in yeah. that situation, we would go ahead and raise our offering at that time. Um, otherwise, the, the goal and the target we have at this point is very attractive, both for investors as well as us for as portfolio managers. You mentioned that as an emerging manager, um, you are not necessarily like all the other emerging managers because various of them don't use alternative data. Um, presumably, you're competing with them um, for capital from allocators. Um, do, I, do you find dropping that phrase alternative data um, is resonates? Are you finding the pulses are quickening when you when you start laying out exactly how you're making money compared to your competitors um, or or not, or are you, are you just not in that kind of conversation? That's not how you're how you're pitching. Well, it certainly is. We have a variety of investors, um, starting from retail and individual high net worth investors. For um, so, I think folks like that, of uh, financial advisors that we work with, it is an attractive and a value add relative to peers. 
Um, again, I, again, not everyone's using it, so it is an advantage that we have, and I think folks are interested, particularly the, not only the way we use it, but the fact and how we use it has been attractive and a conversation piece um, with those folks. When we talk to larger institutions, I think they're much more accustomed to to uh, asset managers utilizing alternative data, especially when our peer group becomes, you know, the larger institutions as well. Um, so I think it's more of a standardization at, at that point, um, but it certainly sets us apart from uh, other uh, asset managers. Okay, so here we are. Um, you are you are increasingly buying alternative data and 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 moving away from from the sell side research. Where do you see the cutting edge in alternative data and kind of using that to look ahead? Where do you think what what changes are you foreseeing in alternative data in the in the coming years? Yeah, I mean, I think the from very high level, the general changes again, I think the, the amount of sources that are out there are growing dramatically. You're finding all sorts of different pockets and areas of uh, new data sources. Um, I'll start with saying the, the geographical bias, clearly there's opportunities still in the U.S., but um, the U.S. has been at the forefront of this. So increasingly Europe, Asia is a very hot market where more and more folks are trying to find the, the best and cleanest data sources that are scalable. Um, I think uh, even markets like I'll keep Australia separate from Asia, but Australia is an interesting, very developed market that, that is continuing to grow. And you see certain signs of, of growth in Latin America. So that's kind of a geographic uh, split. Um, secondly, across industries, again, we mentioned that, you know, the consumer industry for the most part has led sort of the charge in the early days of alternative data. Um, that's expanded into a handful of other areas, but I think there's still significant opportunities when it comes to healthcare, when it comes to industrials, we're seeing those as sort of the next growth areas. Um, we're seeing more on the business services side. So historically, a lot of the alternative data was linked to consumer driven behavior. Um, I think there's certain uh, firms that are trying to focus on business uh, services and business related companies as well. So that's part of the tech industry as well as some other industries there. Um, and then I think you're going to see more and more in energy and materials um, as well as real estate. There's more and more data available in the real estate industry. So I think the breadth of, of um, the amount of sectors that are being covered um, is continuing to grow and that'll be the next sort of frontier. Um, Third, I would say even just the data sets themselves, um, even when you think about some of the traditional ones of web scraping, much, much more is being done in a variety of industries when it comes to web scraping. So we had some very traditional ones before where you go onto a retailer's website and you get pricing and um, you can get some information that way. But I think more and more is being done across a variety of industries, um, even email receipt data is still fairly underutilized in my opinion um, i think you can get much higher levels of detail uh, and accuracy there sometimes than uh, compared to credit card data um, foot traffic data is still growing and i think can be dramatically improved um, there so i think that's another area mobile data in, in our opinion is still highly underappreciated and utilized um, more and more folks are looking at mobile data um, but I think the, the understanding, the utilization of that is still in the early innings. Um, just a clear migration towards mobile apps uh, and mobile usage. Um, so I think, again, more and more opportunity is, is available in, in that space. And I think another area that's not 
talked about as often is, is really imaging and whether it's satellite imaging, um, but any sort of imaging, I think there's a huge potential. Um, I think many folks are doing satellite imagery today, but it's not as widespread. And again, it's an area that would require more analysis, more manpower to synthesize the data. Mm. Um, but I think the the opportunity and the use cases could be pretty meaningful um, for, for imaging uh, as general. It's a different type of data and format from the capturing of it, the analysis mm. of it. But I think the use case of that could be pretty meaningful going forward. But brilliant. Well, Chirayu, um, thank you very much. That was a uh, that was a really interesting um, introduction to Rakani Capital and to how you're using alternative data and to the to the world as you see it. So, thank you very much for uh, for coming and and um, and best of luck with the future. I appreciate it, Mark. Thanks, Long, for the opportunity here to speak on your podcast.